Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we continue our journey through the seven deadly sins. This uh, week we're looking at a little something called gluttony. uh, I feel like I have to do that every time we talk about one of these sins. Yeah. Well, well, of course, I don't know if if a true glutton would be able to, like, it would be more of a muffled, food-choked laugh, right? Yes. Food falling down the the face, kind of a, you know, wine spilling all over one's body kind of a thing. Wine spilling? Wow. Yeah, I guess it does have sort of like a Bacchus-like... Yeah, evocation there. Yeah, it, it makes me think of on Futurama, they have a, there's a robot called Hedonism Bot, and uh, he his legs are the legs of like a, a reclining chair. Mm-hmm. He's like in a reclining state with a bowl of grapes on his chest and has a very Roman air to him. But yeah, so so gluttony is, is the sin that's typically associated with like massive consumptions of food, being really into food, mm-hmm. enormous feasts, feasts without end. And uh, if we look to the uh, pages of uh, Dante's Divine Comedy, we see we see gluttony show up in both Inferno and Purgatory. In Inferno, the pit of uh, eternal suffering at the center of the planet, we uh, see a circle. This is the third circle, guarded by Cerebus, the three-headed dog. You know, now, uh, the dog is a good symbol of gluttony. So, in a dog with three mouths, is that's like triple gluttony, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but but in this circle, uh, it's it's kind of interesting because it's not what if you're not familiar with Dante, it's it's not quite what you might imagine. For a punishment of gluttons. Okay. Uh, Bring it, it on. To all right. Us. So you have rain, hail, and snow falling, just like crazy rain, hail, and snow. Okay. All right. And it's just pummeling the gluttons uh, who are just, they're just like held to the ground by it. And there's just mud everywhere. So they're, they're wallowing like pigs in this mud that's kind of, that may or may not be excrement. There's, um, they're described in very dog-like terms, and so this is where the, the gluttons are punished. Now, in purgatory, whereas we discussed before, this is the mountain that connects earth to heaven, mm-hmm. and souls that uh, aren't quite bad enough for hell, when they need a little uh, polishing before they can get up into heaven, they have to uh, climb this mountain, terrace by terrace. In each terrace, they remove uh, sort of a layer of grimy sin from themselves. Okay, so they're transcending their sins. Right. On the um, the sixth terrace of purgatory, you will find uh, these emaciated spirits with sunken eyes, you know, all the way back in the in the sockets, and their their faces are said to resemble the letter M. That's how swollen and sunk, not swollen, but that's how sunken their faces are. And uh, so they're just suffering excruciating hunger and thirst. So in life, they had all their fill. So if they're going to work off this layer of gluttony, they're going to have to get used to the idea of going hungry. I like how Dante just dove into the grotesque, wasn't scared of it. Um, But that is part of the human condition, right? And um, as uh, Orson Welles says, uh, gluttony is not a secret vice. You can see it all over you. And on the surface, you know, we discussed in the past with uh, on the, the most recent one we did, Envy. And we were talking about how Envy is not a fun, a sin. Mm-hmm. Gluttony is, is one that, at least on the surface, seems a lot more fun. Because, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, re- I really like food. Like, food is, is not just something I'm just kind of into. I, I really enjoy an excellent meal. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk about the reason why we really, really enjoy it, yeah. how we're hardwired. Yeah, and to actually overenjoy it sometimes. Yeah, and the thing that gets me about gluttony is that there's this level of gluttony that we encounter in Inferno and in Purgatory. This this medieval idea of just you know obsessive feasts and all this, but there's like a space age level of gluttony that is only possible in this day and age. Like it's a level of gluttony yeah. that was unimagined in Dante's time. 
Well, exactly. And, and, and let's even say, um, like Henry VIII, right? Could, right. That, that's someone who could afford to be gluttonous, right? Had a bunch of resources. Yeah, he was, at a, his he was a master glutton. I would, I would imagine it's fair to say that. I always think of him with like huge turkey legs. Yes. In, in both hands, mm-hmm. uh, just waving them around. But in today's world, we can all be Henry VIII, right? I mean, gluttony is at our fingertips. Everything that we'd ever wanted, particularly food-wise, um, libations is, yeah. is available. You can at least be a glutton on you can, you, um, as far as bad food goes. You you can, and you could actually be a professional glutton mm-hmm. if you wanted to, and, and and this would come into play in competitive eating. Yeah, yeah, this is what I'm talking about, competitive eating. There are these different levels of your enjoyment of food. There's sort of like, I'm eating because I need nourishment for my body. And then there's this level of, I'm eating because I really enjoy these tastes, and I enjoy the sensation of eating, and I'm I'm enjoying the uh, this on a purely sense level. But when you start looking at competitive eating, it's it seems devoid of either of those things. It is eating purely for the act of eating. Like, and, and you hear some comments like uh, one of the dudes we're going to talk about here says that he got into it because he really likes chicken, and that he really likes <laughs> right, the, like right. the, he, he likes the flavor of things. But still, there's no way you're enjoying the flavor of like 38 hot dogs in a row, uh, you know. And you're certainly not eating that for your your well being. It's something completely removed from those two necessities. Well, it's eating to an absolute obsessive degree, to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, and I think most people are familiar with uh, Takaro Kobayashi. Yes. He is the usually the person that you think of when you think about stuffing like 363 hot dogs in your mouth in under an hour um, and getting paid handsomely for it. But uh, wh- who the person we're, t- we're going to talk about today, his name... Um, well, actually, he goes by El Wingador, and Wingador, you yeah. just referred to him. He his specialty are you know is chicken, chicken wings, and there's a documentary film by Errol Morris called El Wingador, and like uh, a seven minute deal. Um, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not we'll, very long. It's actually pretty. It's worth checking out. Yeah, we'll link to it on the blogs or on the, the Facebook. But it focuses on this five time champion of the Philadelphia Wing Bowl, Bill Simmons, and how he prepares for these competitions is just insane. Yeah, I would be tempted to classify him as a power glutton. Yeah, yeah, a power, if you think about a power lifter, yeah, right? Yeah, he has that kind of power lifter vibe, except yeah. he's uh, he's only lifting things enough to stuff in his mouth. Right, right, right. and stuff to the degree that... that uh, it's just, just purely unholy. Unholy, and, and they talk about this actually in the documentary, to, to the extent that he says that he has almost accidentally eaten one of his digits, his fingers. Yeah, like he says, he claims that his, his hands are covered with scars because mm-hmm. he'll just, he'll get so into the, I guess he's, you know, he's achieving flow. <laughs> he's a transcendent uh, experience for him. Mm-hmm. But it's to the point where he's biting his hands and leaving scars because he's eating chicken wings in this he's other so, state of mind. right, uber-focused on yes. this. Uh, let's talk about how he trains. Okay. He eats 15 pounds of food a day when he's training, and he drinks three gallons of water a day, distending his stomach, right? That's yes. the point of that. And 10 pounds of Tootsie Rolls a week. Yeah, this was especially grotesque, because he's not just eating one and then swallowing it. No, he's, he's throwing them in his mouth and forming them into a massive baseball-sized mass of Tootsie Rolls. A giant Tootsie Roll cut, is that the word? Uh, like a... Like a cow chews its cud? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. there's some vomiting involved there. He's not doing that, right? Well, we don't really know. Well, I mean, he's doing some vomiting, be. but not in, in this situation. So he's he's chewing these Tootsie Rolls up, and he has this baseball-sized mass in his mouth, and then he swallows that. Right. And he says it's all about 
A, strengthening his jaws mm-hmm. so that he can you know, really chomp and chomp um, during these competitions, but also like widening his esophagus. Right, right. Yeah. And he likens it to a snake swallowing a rat. Yeah. He's like, you know, if you're eating for you know your own enjoyment, then you should totally chew your food. But competition, <laughs> it's a different story. Like chewing is for chumps. Yeah, chewing is for chumps. And, and, and not only that, he's such a pro that when he masters this... He moves on to dog bones. Yeah, yeah, like masticating them. Normal, and I'm equating a baseball made out of tootsie rolls as normal human food here, uh, <laughs> but 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 this becomes just too mundane for him. So he moves on yeah, to his his dog's chew toys, and he ends up uh, like what is a five pound bag prior yeah. to competition? That's, yeah, of rawhide bones. Ugh. Yeah, and he says he claims that he never gets full and that he feels that he has an eating disorder. Yeah, because five pound bags of rawhide bones. Like these are those, if you've ever been around a dog chewing one of these things, these are those things that the dogs chew and it makes that loud clacking noise that makes your own teeth hurt. That's what this guy works on. Yeah, yeah. And, um, PopSci actually has a really interesting article on competitive eating and they were talking about what actually happens when, when you're doing this to your body. And they say that muscles stretch uh, when they relax, right, in, in the stomach. And when we eat a big meal, our stomach muscles relax so much that they send a message to the brain, which interprets the signal to mean, hey, you've got a full belly, mm-hmm. um, that our brain stops us from eating anymore. That's what normally happens. Uh, but they say a good training regimen for competitive eating deadens this communication, causing the signal uh, to the brain or the brain itself to become less responsive to the large volume of food. And this is according to Douglas Seidner, MD, Program Director for Clinical Nutrition at the Cleveland Clinic. Huh, so it's kind of mind over matter. Yeah, yeah. It's mind over matter. Or mind you, over burger. Mind over, ver- mind over anything that you eat yourself into a, a numbness and you deaden your urge to stop yeah. eating, which is just incredible. Incredible is, is one way to put it. El Wingador, he's, uh, he's pretty amazing. And he has some, uh, or, or when he has... has I'm not sure if he's active at the moment, but when he is active, sometimes yeah. he is accompanied to the uh, eating platform, mm-hmm. the gluttony ring, whatever you want to call it. By uh, he has he has uh, valets who are called the wingettes. The wingettes. Yeah. So if anyone is particularly taken with this man, you can probably get in touch with him and see about becoming a wingette and be one of his wing women. Yes. Yeah, and that, not only do they cheer for him, but they actually sort of uh, are backup counters for him, right? Don't they sort of? From from what I remember, they actually are counting the amount of food items that he's stuffing down his gullet, okay. and helping to corroborate his win. You yeah, well, because you're going to need somebody to keep track of that. I mean, like when I'm swimming or doing yoga, you know, it's like I, I can't keep track of how many laps or how many sun salutations I've done. It's like I need somebody need, else to tell me now we're on number five because I'm going to get it wrong. So. You need some lamettes. Yeah, I need some lamettes. To- yeah. To, to keep track. But the reason why I bring up competitive eating is because this actually sort of informs the conversation on gluttony and not only just gluttony, but obesity and um, how our body actually responds to eating. And it's really pretty fascinating. Uh, physician Jean Jack Wang of Brookhaven National Laboratory and his colleague Nora Volkow observed that obesity and drug addiction alter the same brain circuits. Uh, in their studies, Wang and Volkow found that both drug addicts and obese people are usually less sensitive to dopamine's rewarding effects. So as we all remember, dopamine is a neurotransmitter and it delivers the high that we feel um, our brain perceives when we eat food or um, we were to say if a you know, drug addict were to have some cocaine. Um, so 
this means that both drug addicts and um, obese people have to chase after a stronger dose of food or drugs in order to get a decent bump of that dopamine. Yes, that whole tra- chasing the dragon type thing. We, mm-hmm. I mean, we've all heard examples of it uh, with like an extreme case like like heroin, where you an individual individual have that first uh, taste of heroin, mm-hmm. and it'll be this amazing just overpowering experience, but they never get that same experience again. Like the rest of their right. lives then is assuming they, I mean, and hopefully they, they're able to get away from it. But right. if they don't, the rest of their lives is about chasing that high, chasing that, that dragon that they met that first time. Right. And it's really interesting to see this in food and obesity and, and see that this increased or excessive stimulation just creates more desensitization with dopamine. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, again, that vicious circle kicks in. And you've got increased desire and decreased payoff at the same time. I have to say, I did have a really good like brunch sandwich at this place. <laughs> and they, they caught it in a Napoleon complex. I don't know why, but but it had uh, brie and uh, bacon or Canadian bacon. I'm not sure, like fig spread, and it was on like this really nice uh, toasted bread. The first time I had it, it was amazing. And then I went back to have it again, and it was it was it was all right. And then uh, it, it's like each time it's like a little uh, a little further removed from that original experience. So. My, my own meager uh, comparison to that. Was the sandwich on stilts or something? No. I'm just trying to figure out why I, they're I calling it the, the Napoleon. I don't know. It's really, uh, one time I had to order it and there was a short person at the table. And it was really kind of weird because I was like, I'll have uh, that sandwich. You know, <laughs> And you just made it even more like Yeah, that and then sandwich. it became even more of a, of a, of a thing. And the yeah. server was like, what sandwich? That sandwich. Oh, the Napoleon? The really short one? When we, we serve on, on stilts it. to make it feel better? <laughs> yeah. It, it would be cool if it were on stilts. But yeah. Well, yeah. My point is the sandwich was dope in that it actually... Dopamine. Uh, yeah, dopamine. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah. Nicely done. So um, Wang looks into this problem of obesity and addiction, and he actually asked some of his volunteers uh, in a study to come hungry. Oh, is this the, the torture experiment? It's yeah. Horrible. It's horrible. He asked them to describe their favorite meals while he heats up that meal in a nearby microwave so that the, the waft of uh, the smell of the, let's say, the Napoleon sandwich is clearly being transmitted to their brains. And then they show a PET scan of the volunteers' brains during this whole process, and they see that the motivation part of their brain goes nuts. Yeah. Okay? And then the orbital frontal con- cortex, which is implicated in decision-making, also lights up. And then they find that the, in the brains of obese people, the regions that regulate sensory information from the mouth and the tongue are even more active than, than other people. And they figure out that sensory processing is elevated. Um, this is the, ooh, that tastes good part, right? Mm-hmm. But the reward sensitivity is lower. See, now this reminds me a lot of our uh, podcast about um, children and Halloween candy and about how yeah. children experience sugar in a, in a kind of different sensory realm than adults do, than most adults do. And, and this uh, experiment uh, really highlights this, this idea that, uh, that obese individuals or individuals with this sort of, with this heightened appetite, mm-hmm. I mean, they, they are experiencing the food in a different way, which, which is, which I think is a, a helpful way to look at it because it's easy for someone to, to look at someone else's problems with food um, and or weight and say, oh, what's the matter with you? Why can't you control yourself? Why, why don't you eat just one slice right. of pizza instead of four? You know, but but if you if you think of it in, in terms of a different sensory experience, mm-hmm. it becomes harder to really have that kind of judgmental uh, attitude. I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, understanding that the brain is actually getting rewired yeah. so that it has less control 
um, in these situations. And in fact, this was explored even more by a New York Times article called The Fat Trap. And what they found is that weight loss and weight control depends, it still depends, of course, on the simple equation of eat less and exercise more, right? right? But for some people, it's a lot more complicated, right? So we talked about the brain being changed in that instance. Um, they were talking in this article, The Fat Trap, about something called post-diet syndrome. And it's essentially a state that your body enters once it's lost at least 10% of its body weight. Yeah. It becomes biologically altered. And it's really fascinating. There's a guy named Joseph Proietto, and he's a physician at the University of Melbourne. And he kept wondering why his really, really motivated and committed patients would gain back at least 11 pounds of the, on average, 30 pounds that they had lost. And these guys were, like, super diligent. Um, the, the patients that he was working with, they had food diaries, um, they still exercised, they did all of this stuff, um, and they were on a low-calorie diet, essentially, at first. But, you know, they followed up with him for a full year, and he kept thinking to himself, why do they keep gaining this back? Um, and journalist Tara P- Parker Pope, who wrote The Fat Trap, started to think about this, too, in her the context of her own life. Mm-hmm. And she started to look at all these different factors um, that could be responsible for the inevitability of weight gain, you know, no matter if you're obese or not. But it makes it incredibly difficult for people who are obese to maintain their weights throughout their whole lives. And, and we'll talk a little bit about why that is when we come back. All right, we're back talking about the post-diet syndrome. It's, yeah. Uh, the body has is has realized that something is amiss, and it's trying to replenish the stores. Right. And it, and it breaks down in some interesting ways. The um, researchers found that there's a gastric hormone called ghrelin, often dubbed the hunger hormone. It's about 20% higher. There's another hormone associated with suppressing hunger called peptide double Y, mm-hmm. and uh, it also ends up leveling out pretty low. Uh, levels of leptin, a hormone that suppresses hunger and increases metabolism, also remain lower than expected. And then you have a, a whole host of other hormones that are associated with hunger and metabolism, and they're all significantly changed compared to pre-dieting levels. Yeah, it's a sort of cocktail that you're, or cocktails of, of hormones um, that get messed with in this post-diet state, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that ghrelin is 20% higher, that hormone that tells you that you're hungry. So you're 20% more activated in terms of like, hey, I'm feeling kind of hungry in your post-diet scenario. And again, the the leptin and the peptide YY are both decreased, and those are the things that help suppress your appetite. Another odd finding is that in some post-diet subjects, muscle fibers were acting like slow-twitch muscles. And slow-twitch muscles are, are actually responsible for less burned calories. So you're seeing this other weirdness happening in the post-diet scenario. And then there's, the, again, going back to the brains of post-dieters. Um, they were studied by researchers Rudolph Leibel and Michael Rosenbaum at Columbia University. And fMRI was used to track the brain patterns of people before and after weight loss while they looked at objects like grapes, gummy bears, chocolate, broccoli, cell phones, and yo-yos, just to put in a couple of non-food items, right? Mm-hmm. And after weight loss, when the dieter looked at food, this, the scan showed a bigger response in the parts of the brain associated with reward and a lower response in the areas associated with control. Again, that's the same thing that we were talking about before. Uh, and the implication is that the body induces cravings by making the person feel more excited about food and giving him or her less willpower to resist a high-calorie treat. The body wants to reset at the higher weight. Huh. 
So, I mean, how this actually susses out is that it really gives someone who's in a post-diet scenario a caloric disadvantage. And what I mean by that is that you could be subject A, for instance, who is 230 pounds, and you're eating 3,000 pounds, or 3,000 pounds, that's a lot. That's even more than L. Winger does. Um, 3,000 calories a day. But then you drop down to 190. And in order to maintain a weight of 190 pounds, you eat 2,300 calories a day. Mm-hmm. Your counterpart, who has not been in a dieting scenario, who is, weighs 190 pounds, actually could have 250 to 400 calories more per day than you to just maintain their weight. So that's what this is. This is how this is all sort of shuffling out is that, you know, when you're in this post-diet state, which, by the way, could last up to six years, um, your body really is not going to burn as many calories and and automatically wants you to reset uh, as opposed to your your counterpoint who isn't dieting Mm -hmm. at that same weight. So you have to burn more and more calories. And this, I think, is is the sticking point of why people continue to creep up on the scales throughout their lives or yo-yo diet uh, because your your body is sort of working against you. Yeah, and it, re- it really becomes a, an issue of like sort of me versus body, and which is which is kind of a, a false idea because we are our bodies. And as we discussed before, what our gut's doing affects what our brain is doing to a level that you can't just cut one off from the other. But it's also not the situation of um, I am, you know, this is all about me. I am going to lose this weight. It becomes this this me and what I want versus the needs of my body and the, the sort of the ideas of my body. And it's not our body just trying to be terrible to us. I mean, right. this I mean, is just sort of maintain. how we evolved, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. we have these, you know, big thick brains that require a lot of energy. It's sort of like the Firefox of browsers, right? It takes up a lot of energy. (laughs) But it makes sense that we have gluttony hardwired into us because at some level we need it. Our brain evolved for us to eat in excess in order to survive. Yeah, I mean, we we live in an environment now that is is rather far removed from, from what we originally evolved into. Where we can go and we can, in most, most of our listeners anyway, you're in a position where you could go out today and you could probably eat just as much as you possibly wanted to. There's, there's, there's nothing that, that would stop you. And, uh, right. and our bodies aren't really evolved to deal with that. Right. Our bodies aren't Neither like, are oh, our brains. We, really. we didn't know that buckets of chicken were just available for, you know, at the drive through. We yeah. thought we had to forage for this stuff. Now, did we mention this that El Wingador, the uh, that Errol Morris originally shot the the, the videos in extra because he was sh- he was shooting a promotional video for KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken. We didn't, but yeah, talk yeah. about that. I and, think that's fascinating. And so he 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 was like, "This is the dude." Because I mean, I, I I guess this was uh, I I forget the exact time frame, but I guess this was in that era of the double down, where, where KFC is like unhealthy food for the win. Let's uh, let's you know, market it this way. Yeah. So. So uh, Morris is like, this is this is the dude. This is the patron saint of Double Down. So he shoots this video with him, and he's, he's like, this dude is so interesting. This is such a fascinating glimpse into really the heart of gluttony. My word's not his. Uh, he had to shoot this 10-minute extra where he's just talking to Wingador about, about it. Right, and I it's love great. that. And um, as you had mentioned earlier when we were talking about this, that um, you got to see him in action yeah. with the wings, getting his glutton chops on. Clinton chops, yeah. yeah, which is, I guess, what you, what you call the the smears of orange hot wing sauce that, yeah. that are on the side of your face when you're uh, uh, fully engorging yourself on chicken wings. Yeah, yeah. As a vegetarian, I can say I've never had glutton chops. Are there? I might have had soy glutton chops. Are, are there soy based, or uh, do you think they're vegetarian or vegan eating competitions? No. <laughs> <laughs> 
but you know, again, if someone's out there and they they want to uh, explore that, there you go. There's an idea. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's just sort of antithetical to the whole vegetarian vegan thing. Yeah. I could be wrong though. No, no, I I, I think it tends to be. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the future of gluttony because there's always a future for gluttony. Yeah, I mean. It, you know, like I said, we've reached the space age of gluttony with uh, eating competitions, but I think humans could be grosser. I think we have it in ourselves to uh, to do more. Well, I think that, you know, there's there's the possibility that we could actually create the vomitorium, right? We used to think that in Roman times that there was something called a vomitorium that we, we'd eat in excess. And they did. There was a vomitorium, but it was it was not a place where you throw up your food so you can eat more. It was just an architectural flourish, I believe. Yeah, 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 that people mistook for like this big communal place where you just threw up after you... Yeah, which is a fabulous gluttonous idea that doesn't exactly exist. But in the future, we might actually be able to manage food in a way that we could overeat and in a way uh, get rid of all of this excess. And that is through leptin. Again, we talked about leptin as being something that could, uh, that is very helpful in appetite suppression. And scientists at Columbia University have conducted several small studies looking at whether injecting people with leptin mm-hmm. can override the body's resistance to weight loss and help maintain a lower weight. And this is that in a few small studies, leptin injections seem to trick the body into thinking it's still fat. And after leptin replacement, and this is really interesting, study subjects burned more calories during activity, and in brain scan studies, leptin injections appeared to change how the brain responds to food, huh. making it seem less enticing. So you would, like, stick a syringe of leptin in one end mm-hmm. and a meatball sub in the other, <laughs> and, and and they would they would balance each other out. Right, right. They just cancel each other out. Uh, but, of course, this is a sort of a new treatment and not something that's been widely studied and is probably years away for use. Right. Yeah. Chicken for cheese steak. Why did I go for meatball? Cheesesteak is much grosser. You think that's more gluttonous than meatball? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, they're man, basically the same. Both are lots of meat and some cheese on giant pieces of bread. But there's something about the cheesesteak that's a little viler. I guess maybe because it's protein on protein. I guess. Yeah. It seems like, like there was a, a show I was watching, and it was like they were profiling these different chefs and their favorite foods in different cities. And like every city has its own cheesesteak. I feel like I've done this rant before. But it, I, I have a thing against cheese sticks. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to have to have a Science of Cheese Steaks uh, <laughs> podcast coming up. Um, here's another thing that is that uh, on the cusp of our understanding and perhaps harnessing this information, something called brown fat, uh, yeah. which are fat cells that consume calories and release heat. Yeah, and if you're not driving or riding a bicycle or anything like that, you can, you can probably reach up around your neck. And you can sort of feel yourself a little, a little brown fat, right? Because that's where the uh, the human body tends to store it. Oh, doing yeah. it right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a nice little padding there. Um, it is important because researchers actually think that um, this could help turn white fat into brown fat, and you could actually burn more calories. And you could possibly do this by exercising. They they have seen in subjects that exercise can uh, create brown fat out of white fat. Yeah, and this brown fat is remarkable because rather than storing excess energy, the fat actually burns through it. Right. Yeah. And and previously, we kind of only thought that it was uh, like a rodent or human newborn thing. Rats are babies. Yeah. One of the, you know, they were the only ones to, who uh, who were really that into it. And we would, and generally, if you would see a lot of brown fat in a human, an adult human, it meant that there was some sort of, uh, that generally there was some of the kind of health ailment going on that unbalanced things. 
Yeah, but they have a, a much better understanding. And this, I mean, this is only like three years old information, right? right? Yeah, we're and, still figuring it out. Yeah, like yeah. They're, that they even figured out that brown fat exists in adult humans. And again, to go back to the rodents, um, at first, you know, they thought, okay, well, rodents can't shiver and they use brown fat to keep warm. And so do human infants who also don't shiver very well. And then they thought, well, once humans lose their brown fat after infancy, the shivering response kicks in and we no longer have a use for the brown fat. And that is not true. Um, they actually found, found that younger women have more uh, brown fat than, say, older men. Thinner people have more brown fat than um, than larger people. Uh, so they're still trying to figure it out and figure out how to actually uh, manipulate it again yeah. for our own use. But. But it's one of those things that could be problematic, though, because the, the people who have the most active brown fat are generally individuals with cancer or uh, hyperthyroidism. So, Right. And again, hyperthyroidism and, and cancer, assuming that um, you probably have whittled down to a weight that's not, uh, that is no longer healthy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's got its limits, but that could be an uh, interesting future in terms of fighting off gluttony. Another possibility, this would be far future, uh, and I, I feel like I've mentioned this example before, but in Ian M. Banks' culture series, the denizens of the culture uh, who, you know, they've been genetically uh, in, uh, advanced to the point where they can they can release uh, random uh, drug-like chemicals into their body just by thinking about them. Uh, they have these, you know, the benevolent robots that look after them, but they can also bypass food or beverage. So, uh, like, if an individual wants to have another cocktail but doesn't want to feel the effects of that cocktail, mm-hmm. they can bypass it straight through. Well, not straight through. Well, that, would it be the uh, the effects of that cocktail later on? I mean, you still want to hit the mm-hmm. reward center, right? I think they would just, you would get the taste. It would be like chewing a food and then spitting it out. Or I guess it would be a little, they would get like a little bit of the, um, uh, I, I got the impression it was it was like, I want to enjoy this food, mm-hmm. but I don't want to actually digest it. And I don't, or I want to enjoy this beverage, but I don't want to actually take any of the alcohol into my system. Hmm. So it's like they have a separate line just for purely recreational uh, food and beverage. I like that. So it's like two different digestive systems in a way. Yeah. Although the the one digestive system doesn't really work. Yeah. I'm just trying to think how we can fit this into our own little uh, worldview in the future, the possibility of having two different digestive systems. Yeah. I mean, I mean, of course, there are other possibilities, too, in terms of the future of gluttony. Like, imagine being able to plug yourself into a virtual environment where you just eat all you want. Yeah. You know? Would that would that sate you? You know, I wonder if that would kick in, again, with the reward center and dopamine, if that would be released I don't in know. that situation. Maybe. Maybe. It's, it's such a far future possibility. Yeah. Like you would have to, and we're ta- we would be talking more than just like strapping in some goggles and some haptic gloves and, you know, going through a city made out of cheeseburgers. It would, you would have to have a much more uh, like neurologically plugged in system uh, for that to take place. And by that point, who knows what, we, what else we'd have figured out. Well, and then do you think in that realm that more people would become competitive eaters? That's my question. Maybe, but it would be a crazy, like the competition would just be off the, the charts. I mean, how would you even clock that i don't know i don't know some somehow some way interestingly enough you know this will come out like a couple of weeks later but uh, we were recording this on ash wednesday before oh, a yeah. lot of people go into uh, like some sort of lenten uh, fasting or saying i'm not going to eat fried foods except on feast days kind of a thing so but that's kind of that's that's kind of perfect yeah yeah impetus. yeah so well talking about sins and yeah. Lent and gluttony shall we bring the robot over yes bring the robot over with his fat sack of mail all right and uh this this is rather fitting as well uh we heard from a listener by the name of aaron 
Aaron uh, writes in and says, Hello, Robert and Julie. I just finished listening to your Absolute Disgust podcast in which you mentioned the cloaca bot. Which, and you, you have, she has to specify because I guess we do mention that, that creation a lot. Yeah. Last week, I was lucky enough to take a trip to Tasmania for my 25th birthday. Happy birthday. And whilst I was there, I visited the Mona Art Gallery. Um, it was here I got to experience the cloaca bot for myself, close up and somewhat personal. Upon arrival at the gallery, I wasn't too familiar with Wim Delvo's work. So when I walked into the room that contained the bot, I was a bit caught off guard. There was a quote in some of the information that was given to me about the bot that pretty much sums up the artwork for me, and it was a bit tedious to watch and stinks. <laughs> um, I was captivated by the contraption as it looked like something could have uh, come out of the original Willy Wonka film. And once I realized uh, what the piece was, I was intrigued to find out more, but I also was uh, soon impulsed to get out of the room quickly. I can only describe the smell as unsettling. It wasn't a smack-in-the-face stench, but more of an earthy, grumbling, feel-it-in-the-back-of-your-throat kind of smell. Um, that as much as I wanted to explore the machine more, I couldn't stay in the room. Uh, there were a few other smaller versions of the Cloaca bot. My favorite was Cloaca number 5. <laughs> uh, that were in a separate room uh, that I mustered up lung capacity to do a quick trip round to peek at, at uh, all the inner works of these machineries. It was a smelly yet intriguing experience. And then she goes on to point out that her uh, um, perhaps her only major disgust uh, is mangoes, of all things. You know what? I actually understood that. What? Really? Mm-hmm. How? Because they're slimy. Um, and they don't, for, for me, they don't pack the punch of like a peach or, you know, some other fruit in the same category. Huh. Well, I mean, I love mangoes, but they are a bit temperamental. They're one of those fruits when you buy them that you, you never really know what you're going to get. Like a banana, banana's pretty consistent. Uh, yeah. I mean, assume it, you can tell on the outside what a banana's probably doing on the inside and, uh, and you, you know what you're in for. But like a mango's kind of like a cantaloupe. Uh, to an extent, you see, you and I don't like cantaloupe know. either. Yeah, yeah. So cantaloupe's one of those where it's sometimes, it's, sometimes the cantaloupe is amazing, but sometimes it's just kind of. Uh, yeah, just the payoff yeah. is not so great. I get this. We shouldn't say anything about sliminess, but I understand it from that perspective. But apparently in Australia, that makes for a, a bit of a. Um, yes, yeah, so it's un-Australian. Very un-Australian, odd person. The golden fruit. Is what it's the golden yeah. fruit, right? She's been shunned for not liking them. Well, well, presumably. I would say, well, mail me your mangoes then, but that would be disgusting because by the time I got here, yeah. they, would, they would just be, it would be this grotesque package full of insects and slime. Uh, but anyway, she uh, closes by saying, love listening to your podcast along with lots of other podcasts from you folks at HSW. Thanks for blowing my mind on a weekly basis. All so, right. yeah, well, that was an excellent uh, email. Got to hear about uh, the about and more about like firsthand knowledge of the Cloacabot. I love I that people are out there meeting it for us. Well, it's on my bucket list now. <laughs> I've heard so much about it. I mean, I've read so much about it. I just I've got to see it in the flesh. In the <laughs> yeah, poor choice of words. All right. Well, there you go, Gluttony. We would love, as always, to hear your input on this topic. What is your perception of Gluttony? What is your experience with Gluttony? What do you think about uh, professional eating contest? Have you ever participated in one? And uh, and what do you think about a, a nice, friendly vegan eating competition? Uh, is that against everything vegans stand for, or would it be kind of interesting? I don't know. You can find us on Facebook. It's Stuff to Blow Your Mind. And, uh, oh, we're also on Twitter. You can uh, reach out to us there, at Blow the Mind. And you can always send us an email to blowthemind at discovery.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. 
Join House Stuff Works staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.